Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Okay, 54, 32. 32. 32, be advised. Squad's going out to 92 Buck Road. Send me for a gunshot victim. A male in the parking lot of 92 Buck Road saying he was shot by a subject in a blue minivan. Now take me through kind of what happened. The homicide occurred uh, on February 11, 2009, uh, which I believe was a Wednesday morning. And the dispatch time was about 9.02 a.m. What I remember about that day was unseasonably warm for uh, February. It was, uh, we didn't have jackets on when we were out in the shopping center. We were out in just shirts. Doing interviews, and uh, it was a very sunny, sunny winter day. They couldn't find anybody with any reason to kill my brother. It wasn't about money, he didn't owe anybody money. They couldn't find any reason at all. It's just a total, complete mystery. Minivan possibly up Buck Road at this time. 92 Buck. Henry. Received. Carter back. All right, 22. 22 received. Have a direction of where he was traveling, the blue minivan. Intake still in line, getting more. This was a cold-blooded, calculated killing. This this killer acted deliberately, intentionally, with malice. So you're investigating who? The death of Eric Birnbaum. From KYW News Radio in Philadelphia. Philly. Philadelphia. We knew where the crime scene was. Was in a parking lot right outside uh, Terry Goldberg's law firm. So I don't know that we actually went there. It was too sad. These are true stories about unsolved crimes. Actually, uh, we're standing right in the area where uh, Eric Birnbaum had parked his car and exited his car and was standing probably right about here. It's not often that we have a case where we are stumped. And I hate to be so dramatic, but we want to make this right. We want to avenge his death and bring his killer to justice. We did all the things that you do. We had a funeral and we sat shiva and we tried to make the girls peaceful and make ourselves peaceful and figure out how to keep living. I'm Kristen Johansson. I'm Tom Rickard. This is Gone Cold.
Holland isn't a very big town. Bucks County, Pennsylvania. The last commuter train stopped rumbling through in the 80s. It's in Northampton Township, about a 40-minute drive up I-95 from Philadelphia. Buck Road cuts through the town. You'll find a handful of places to shop along the way, a few delis, there's a bank, a couple of law firms. My name is Lieutenant Charles Pinkerton. I've been a, a police officer in Northampton since uh, June in 1990. At the time of this homicide, I was uh, one of the detectives that responded out to Gateway Shopping Center, uh, where the law firm of Terry Goldberg is. And sometime later on on the day of uh, February 11th, I was assigned as uh, the lead Northampton investigator responsible for, for investigating this homicide. This happened a decade ago, but it also happened in a really peaceful part of our area, of our region, when the sun's out and people are just trying to go to work. The timing of it is bizarre. Where it happened is bizarre. And who it happened to? From everybody I've talked to with this case, there's not one person that could say a bad thing about Eric. Eric was a attorney who specialized in workers' comp, trying to get uh, compensation for people who may have been disabled on a job or may have a disability or injury that prohibited them from continuing to work. And that's the type of law work he did at Terry Goldberg's law office and that he had previously practiced for the law firm of Slifkin and Axe. Eric Birnbaum was an attorney there for uh, 25 plus years uh, doing workers' comp law. I went up to Northampton Township to talk to Lieutenant Charles Pinkerton, Chuck Pinkerton. They eventually took us into the back, into this interrogation room that's like a walk-in closet, but turned into interrogation room. Honestly, something that you would see on TV shows. The rectangular fluorescent lights above, metal chairs and tables, and then there's this like fan vent going in the background that you can hear throughout our interview. Across from me was the district attorney, Matt Weintraub, Tim Carroll, who's a detective within the DA's office, and Lieutenant Pinkerton. You know, he's been following this again. This has been on his plate for 10 years, 10 years, 10 very long years for him. He was there from the beginning. So what would this mean to you for this to be solved? Uh, Closure. Closure for the police department, for myself, and most importantly, the Birnbaum family, his daughters, his sister, for his father, who's still surviving. Those people need closure. That's the most important thing. Do you talk to them often? I talk to um, his sister, Donna Birnbaum, and we've stayed in touch over the years. When you uh, investigate a homicide, you sort of have to, you know, learn about the family. And you learn about, you know, who Eric was. You talk to the family and you know, they share different thoughts about him. 
So, um, sorry, how's everything going? Okay, good. How's the weather down there, Donna? Nice and steamy. Not like up here in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's a nice on? day out here, but it's a little chilly for me, at least in at least in the office. Gotcha. Where uh, are you? At? Uh, we're down. we're right in Philadelphia, downtown. Right, Fifteenth uh, and Spring Garden. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And where are you in Florida? I'm in Palm Beach County, on the East Coast. Nice. My name is Donna Birnbaum. Eric was my baby brother. So when you say baby brother, and by the way, I'm a big sister too. Thank you for saying baby brother because he makes fun of me when I say baby. He's like, I'm a baby. But mm-hmm. they're always your baby brother, right? Exactly. He was six years and six days younger than me. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. So were you guys close growing up? Uh, we were pretty close until I left home because I was the bad child. I was the wild girl. And he was still young when I left. But we got close again, very close, as adults. We tried as a family to always have a family reunion. Myself and my significant other and my brother and his girls and my parents. Uh, This is after his divorce. One of the reunions, I lived in Southern California, and we had this big picnic in the park overlooking the ocean. My nieces and my mom and I would go shopping. We'd leave Eric and my dad at home. But then after the reunion was over, he always went home and he would get all the pictures printed and he would make each of us a picture book for the year, a memory for, of the reunion. It was a very sweet thing. Oh my gosh. How many did you guys have of those? Uh, I remember five. Tell me what it was like growing up with him, what kind of kid he was, what he liked to do. He was just one of the boys. He had a bunch of kids all growing up in the same neighborhood together, and they stayed friends all these years. We grew up in Philadelphia at Front and Cheltenham. I went to Girls High. He went to Central. Uh, He went to religious school after high school. You know, so he spent a lot of time studying and gaining knowledge and learning to be part of a community. And he was always very family-oriented. We both were. Our family was a pretty cool family. Are your parents both living still, or...? No, my mom is gone. My mom died in uh, 2015, and then I stayed in Florida to help my dad because he's not able to care for himself. When this happened to my brother, my dad's mind just went away a little bit, and it never really came back. I mean, it happened to all of us, but we all had to come back and live in the world, and my dad doesn't... 100% live in the world anymore. And if I explain to him what had happened, I don't know what his comprehension level is anymore. And so for you, this is, this happened in your neighborhood. Happened in our neighborhood. We're a township of approximately 40,000 people. We don't have a lot of Uh, shootings. We have very, very few homicides. And when this occurred, it happened, you know, at the start of the business day on a Wednesday in front of a business. 
We were certainly familiar with the law firm of Terry Goldberg. His picture in advertising was something that many people in this community and this area of Lower Bucks County would be familiar with because his picture was was on all the advertising uh, as the face of the of the law firm. Can you say and spell your name and then also give me how you're related in any way to Eric? My name's Terry Goldberg. I met Eric when we were young teenagers, probably about 15, 16 years old. Terry and Eric met in high school. They lived a few streets, a few minutes from each other, but there was something there with their friendship that just clicked. Eric went to Central, I went to Northeast. Once we became friends, it didn't really matter that we went to different high schools. Then we went to college together. At Temple in Philly. Then we went to law school at the same time. They both went to Delaware Law School, and then they transferred to different schools. He went to John Marshall out in Chicago, and I went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Terry's very protective of his family, and he said that they were that Eric and he were so close that he actually even let Eric date his sister. I would never let any of my friends near my sister, but Eric was such a good guy, and I thought his intentions were honorable all the time. It was kind of a funny story he told. Uh, best friends for so many years. Uh, we led different lives, though, because I stayed single till I was about 36, and Eric was married earlier. Terry's the one that introduced Eric to his wife the mother of his children, now his ex-wife. And they asked me to be the godfather of their children. They were best friends for their adult life. When I was getting married, he was still alive. Now when I have kids that are getting married, um, you know, I wanted to call him and tell him that one of my kids was getting married. There's a type of friendship I think everybody may understand of there's just this other level of a connection that just makes you family. There's no secret. There's no. There's nothing too personal to tell. Everything's just out there in the open for this other person because you know that they're not going to judge you. That was Terry and Eric's friendship. I think about calling him. I just do. It's hard. It really is hard to not have that person to call. There's still times now when I feel like calling him. And I had a friend like that too for 30 years who recently passed away from an illness and. I just understand this friendship. I think it. I think, oh, I've got to call Eric. And then I kind of come back to reality that I can't call Eric. Eric wasn't the kind of guy to just go out to a bar with me because I was single and going out to a bar. You know, he was home with his wife and children. Um, He did whatever he had to do to make sure his girls had what they needed and that they were happy. He would do without things himself if it meant getting the girls things that they needed. He was just a great parent. Even after they were divorced, Eric went to his ex-wife's house on Sundays to have brunch with them. By that point, there was no fighting or anything once they were through the divorce stage. Um, I think by the time Eric passed away, they were actually friendly again, him and his ex-wife. But he would, he would go there and have brunch with them and clean their cars for them every Sunday. He'd wash their cars. He just... In my mind, best dad out of all of my friends. He's the best dad. Like Some guys, when they get divorced, just from experiences I've seen, some guys are like, okay, great, now i got six nights free a week and I only got to you know, get my kids on Friday night and drop them off by Sunday. Um, 
Eric was not like that at all. He would want to see them every day. I think that was what tore him up the most about his divorce, was that he couldn't tuck them in every day. Terry told me that Eric was ethical, law-abiding, type A personality, could only follow the rules. Probably the most ethical person that I ever knew. Didn't go outside the lines, ever. Everything was by the books, and this is how it has to be, and these are the rules, and Eric wouldn't bend them. He's very, he calls him squeaky clean. He was also a really good lawyer. And there are a lot of lawyers out there. He wanted to do the research. He wanted to know everything before he went into a courtroom. If Eric gave you an opinion about something, it wasn't off the top of his head. It was well-researched, well-thought-out. Terry ended up getting Eric his first job. As a lawyer, just through somebody I knew that was looking. He got him his second job also. And then Eric remained with Slifkin and Axe for probably close to 20 years. We remained really close for all those years. I tried to get him to leave and come work with me several times over the years. And he would always say, in typical Eric fashion, you know what, I wouldn't want anything that could possibly happen at work to affect our friendship, so I'm going to decline. And he did. Until mid-2008, I lost a pretty skilled attorney here who wanted to go open his own practice. And uh, I once again asked Eric if he would come, and and finally he said yes. And it didn't last very long, because that was probably July, August of 2008, and, and this happened in February of 2009. We're coming up on 10 years. February 11th, 10 years ago. What happened to Eric Birnbaum that morning? Next, on Gone Cold. No closure to the mystery and the sorrow. Gone Cold is KYW News Radio's true crime podcast about unsolved cases in the Philadelphia area. Someone has to know what happened and who did this. We searched the wooded area, we searched dumpsters. Someone's life ended tonight. It's the most important thing you can investigate as a police officer. Who has the clue that unlocks the truth? Search for Gone Cold KYW in the radio.com app or wherever you get your podcasts. I apologize. I mean, I know that I'm asking you to, like, reopen this wound, but can you go back to the day that you found out about your brother and just what happened, how your parents found out? I was home in California. I got a phone call pretty early in the morning California time, you know, of course, it's three hours, three hours earlier than it is here in the East. My morning that morning was like any other morning. I got up, I watched Sports Center with my kid, and then my wife went to take him to school. And I jumped in the shower. And I never answer my house phone. Even to this day, there's nobody who calls me on it. So I just don't. Uh, I got a phone call from Terry Goldberg, and right away I knew that that wasn't going to be good news because. There was no reason in life that my brother's friend and employer would have to call me early in the morning like that unless it was something terrible.
That morning, I was just getting out of the shower. My wife had just left to take my kid to school 10, 15 minutes earlier. And I answered the phone. I don't know why. And all I heard was a hysterical woman screaming. I thought it was my wife. And I thought it sounded horrible. I couldn't make out the words. It just sounded horrible. And I had this picture in my mind that my wife was in an accident. And I just kept saying, Cindy, calm down. My secretary's name is Cindy, and my wife's name is Cindy. So I had the name right, but I had the wrong one. It was my secretary, Cindy, that was calling to tell me what happened. And she was standing outside talking to him when it happened. Thirty-two. 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 Be advised, squad one at the ninety-two Buck Road. Cindy for a gunshot victim. A male in the parking lot of ninety-two Buck Road. The law firm of Terry Goldberg was on the left end here. It was only a single uh, office building. She was calling me from the parking lot within seconds of it happening. I was thinking it was my wife calling me on her way to school, and that something horrible happened. It sounded like somebody was killed, literally. And then the first words I could make out were parking lot. The next word that I was able to make out was Eric. And then I heard office and I just threw on sweats and ran down to the office. You got to the scene. What was the scene like? What was the, was it chaotic? It was very chaotic by the time uh, I got to the scene. Uh, numerous police officers were on the scene because that location in in our township is very close to um, the Lower Southampton border. The chief of police of Lower Southampton and another uh, Philadelphia police captain from Philadelphia happened to be in the area and were one of the first officers that were on scene. Terry called me and I was sitting at the top of the steps because we lived in a townhouse then and uh, I think I almost fell down the steps but I got off the phone and Terry just told me, Don, a terrible thing has happened. You just, you have to come to Philadelphia. Just as soon as you can get here and get your parents here, something happened to Eric. When I got here, you know, they were working on Eric uh, in the parking lot, but they wouldn't let me near him. And I asked them if he was going to be all right, and they told me no. Burnbaum had pulled into the parking lot uh, right at the same time as a co-worker. The co-worker was getting out of their car, Eric was getting out of his car, and they began to exchange morning greetings at the back of their respective vehicles uh, when a male came up and shot Eric Birnbaum one time in the back of the head. Uh, we're standing right in the area where uh, Eric Birnbaum had parked his car. Very close range. Uh, and Mr. Birnbaum didn't know the person was behind him. Probably right about here uh, when the co-worker exited their car there and they were 
Eric was facing in this direction, which is south, uh, speaking to the co-worker when the suspect came up behind him and, and it killed was him. Quick. It, was it was quick. One shot, uh, very quick. He was being tended to by um, paramedics that were already on the scene. Where is he laying? Uh, right here. Uh, in this travel way right here in front of the cars where we're standing. There is a lot of blood from the from the head wound. Back? He was on his back when I got here and being tended to. And immediately the, uh, the supervisor of detectives, upon arrival of the county detectives, everybody was given uh, jobs and to start conducting field interviews of the witnesses that were crowded around here. And most of those witnesses were secondary to the scene, people that had come out after the shooting. Um, so we took statements from them and we interviewed the witness uh, that was next to uh, Eric at the time of the shooting. And we spoke to other employees of all the shopping center uh, and the area businesses. And so really it was just the co-worker that was coming out of their car they just both they both were obviously getting into work because it's at like around nine o'clock did they see anything uh certainly they provided a description of the person uh, they don't they don't know a motive and they don't know what happened afterwards because of the traumatic nature of the of the incident did they were they able to comprehend it i want to say or because it, it just feels like a great like shock disbelief up. and uh just taken very by surprise of everything happening and not knowing what's going on. So it's very chaotic for that person. They had no no idea this was coming. I told my significant other to pack for us. Uh, I called a limo company and said, we have to go to the airport. And I called a girlfriend and said, you have to take care of the cat. And I called my parents and said, you need to meet me in Philadelphia tonight. And I managed all the time differences and made it cross country and landed in Philly and were able to meet my parents' plane. We went up to, I don't know, Langhorn area and to a hotel and Terry actually came to meet with us to tell us that Eric was gone. It was awful. What did the the witness say that they saw? Uh, they heard the shot. Uh, they came out. They heard the screaming uh, from the coworker, and they observed this minivan, you know, driving quickly through the parking lot away. Shot by a subject in a blue minivan. Minivan possibly up Buck Road at this time. Ninety-two Buck. Henry. Received car to back. Twenty-two. Twenty-two received. Have a direction of where he was traveling the blue minivan. Making a right onto Buck Road. And heading towards Feasterville. How long did all this take to Less than a minute. Did people report hearing a gunshot and that's why they came out? Uh, certainly people uh, that were in the area ran in and alerted the people in the delicatessen of what had happened. And uh, they made a 911 call. And they came out and assisted in the first aid uh, for Eric Birnbaum. So did, were other people in the parking lot at the time 
in general? Or, I mean, I know there was that one person, that, you know, the one co-worker, but were there people that saw something? There were people in the parking lot at the time it happened, uh, whether or not they attributed it and we've spoken to everyone we can't say to that but we have spoken to a couple people that had been in the parking lot just prior to the incident and that had pulled in afterwards but those are the people that then ran to either the delicatessen or okay that's correct so where exactly was the blue van this way or the van was uh seen driving this way through the shopping center exiting there and heading south on on Buck Road towards Feasterville. The van was what a couple parking spots um, We don't know where the van was at the time We don't know where the van was located at the time of the homicide so it would be speculation where the van was parked What was really the first thought about what happened and what was the first thing investigators did? Well, initially, when the flash description went out, I mean, the police officers were looking for a light blue minivan uh, with a male driver. That was the initial focus to get as many police cars along the Buck Road, Bustleton Pike uh, corridor to try and identify that vehicle. As soon as they finished talking to the witnesses and learned about the blue van, police sent out a flash. Flash is a police broadcast, emergency broadcast, with uh, as much information as possible of a recent or previous crime. This is Tim Carroll. I'm a Bucks County detective, so I'm a police officer that works for the district attorney. I was here on day one, as well as seven or eight other county detectives. Um, I had just arrived at the office and uh, was given a phone call. I was told there was a shooting, probable homicide in Northampton Township, and I was directed here. This was a short time after that flash went out, telling police to look out for a blue van. Because it was a homicide and because we're not that far from Philadelphia and the direction given by a witness, uh, it was deemed that Philadelphia should be given the information too. They, They were given it and a Philadelphia 7th District police officer heard the flash and made a car stop. Detective Carroll was on his way to the crime scene, the parking lot outside Terry Goldberg's office, when he got a phone call from the station. I was um, called and told that there was somebody stopped, a traffic stop in Philadelphia, uh, that may or may not have something to do with the crime. And a Philadelphia police uh, officer had uh, observed a van, uh, made a car stop. So Tim changed directions and drove to Philly. And uh, Once I arrived at the scene, we decided to take that person down to the homicide uh, division at the roundhouse. Uh, I proceeded there, met with the person, interviewed the person. Um, when that was finished, then I came here to the police station. Did you rule that person out? I did, yes. I couldn't get right over to the hospital because the police thought that they found somebody. One of my secretaries thought she saw a blue van pulling out of the parking lot. And within minutes, they pulled over a blue van. They thought the guy matched the description. They thought the vehicle matched the description. And they wanted my secretary to go there because she saw this van. They wanted my other secretary to go because she saw the person. 
So the three of us went. They didn't want to go alone. And uh, we went. It turned out that that was not the person, uh, that he had a very good alibi. Uh, I'm sure he had a terribly long, horrible day himself, too, because they did take him to the police station and ask him lots of questions. So that was that day? That was that day, uh, probably within six hours of the homicide occurring. So at that point in time, investigators had to try and focus on a motive, on what we think the, uh, what we would think would be the motive for killing Eric Birnbaum. And so... Take me back. Did you guys go to the crime scene? Did you go to his office during that month? What did you do when you got there? Well, the first thing we did is met with Terry and we slept because it was midnight at that point. And the next morning we went to the police station and we met Detective Pinkerton and some other people. And, uh, you know, we had to answer the usual questions. Where were you? And do you know what happened? And why do you think this happened? And just all sorts of really bizarre things to ask us. I mean, for heaven's sake, I lived in California and my parents in Florida. But through the month, we went to the mortuary. We planned a funeral. We, we went to his office. I think we emptied his house. Then maybe we went back to empty his house. We knew where the crime scene was. It was in a parking lot right outside uh, Terry Goldberg's law firm. So I don't know that we actually went there. It was too sad, but uh, we did all the things that you do. We had a funeral and we sat shiva and we you know, tried to make the girls peaceful and make ourselves peaceful and figure out how to keep living. In, in the Jewish religion, uh, the person is buried very quickly, and then afterwards is time for grieving. And you say prayers every day at sunset, I guess it's sunrise and at sunset, uh, the mourner's prayers. You sit for seven days until it's the Sabbath, and then you get up from sitting shiva. They call it getting up. And traditionally, people bring food because you don't do anything. You don't wear jewelry, you don't wear makeup. It's a, it's a very solemn time, uh, and family and friends come and pay their respects and keep you company, and they just hold your hand. And uh, I'm thinking that, actually, now that I'm thinking of it, we couldn't really do that because I didn't leave, live in Philly, and my parents didn't live in Philly, so we just sort of had a mini version of that. Uh, at Eric's ex-wife's house because there really wasn't any place for us to do that. It was just a crazy time. I can't even think about how sad that time was. When we come back, we'll go over some of the theories and rumors that were going around Holland after Eric's murder. And the district attorney and lieutenant decide to show us something they've never made public before. A piece of evidence that's being released for the first time. Stay with us. When there's 
no closure to the mystery and the sorrow. Gone Cold is KYW News Radio's true crime podcast about unsolved cases in the Philadelphia area. Someone has to know what happened and who did this. We searched the wooded area, we searched dumpsters. Someone's life ended tonight. It's the most important thing you can investigate as a police officer. Who has the clue that unlocks the truth? Search for Gone Cold KYW in the radio.com app or wherever you get your podcasts. Apparently they put uh, something on the news right away that showed my sign, which is the same size as the sign out there now, but at that time it just said Terry D. Goldberg and Associates. And the flashing news story was that a 51-year-old lawyer was shot in Holland. It didn't mention names. So somebody that I went to law school with saw that and started spreading word around throughout the legal community that I was shot. I was getting messages on my own voicemail machine saying how sorry they were that I was shot. And it was no consolation that I wasn't because my best friend was, you know, dying. That wasn't the only rumor that flew around after the shooting. Everyone has a theory. Everyone thought, you know, it's a case of mistaken identity. There were all kinds of thoughts going on in a, in a lot of people's minds. There were stories that I heard just through rumors on the street that were making me angry. You know, people who were sure it was meant for me. Having known Eric so well and knowing that his past was squeaky clean, you know, he didn't do illegal or improper things. He just didn't. He wouldn't even bend an ethical rule. So I just couldn't fathom who would want to do that to him. So at the beginning, yeah, I was thinking, was it something that was meant for me? Was it something that someone was angry at the firm? I just couldn't imagine anyone being angry at Eric to do that to him. Did Terry and um, Eric drive similar vehicles? Terry and Eric did not drive similar vehicles. You know, I was driving a white Mercedes convertible at the time. He was driving a black four-door sedan. But certainly their stature and their build and the clothes they would wear during the day would be would be similar. From the back, you might not know who it was. They felt at the time as though whoever did this was casing the place out and, and knew what they were doing. And nobody would mistake me for Eric, not in terms of looks, not in terms of the time we arrived, not in terms of the cars we drove. But you can't help but think, wow, Eric's, there's nothing about him that I could imagine anyone ever being angry about, so maybe. I tried to think of everything I could think of, and we couldn't think of anything, anything. And I was like calling Detective Pinkerton every day. What's happening? What's up? Did anything happen? Did you find anything out? And just nothing. They asked questions that I think were appropriate at the time about both he and I, you know, asking if he was into gambling or drugs or someone else's wife or, you know, things like that. And I was sure that he wasn't. He would have told me. You know, we were that close that he would have told me that that was going on or he would have asked me my opinion on it or it wouldn't be a secret, not between him and I. No money, no jealous husbands, no jealous girlfriends, no jealous wife. Just 
no reason, no, no bad business practices, nothing. You know, I just don't see any progress because I guess they can't figure out a motive because there's no place in my brother's life that you could see that he had done something so terrible that someone would want to hurt him in this way. And when we went to his house with the police, there were messages on the answering machine to the family of Eric, people crying, people saying he was such an amazing person and how could this happen? They didn't know how else to express their grief and they left the messages on his answering machine at his house. I thought that was so amazing. So you've looked into relationships that he's had and nothing is... Nothing. We looked at a lot, a lot, a lot of people and uh, eliminated eliminated those as, as persons of interest. You know there's been reports about mistaken identity that maybe somebody was going after Terry Goldberg instead. I mean, that's just been in papers. The Bucks County Courier Times are a whole piece on that. Can you speak to that at all? I mean, I'll feel this one. Give you some plausible deniability. I'm Matt Weintro, Bucks County District Attorney. When I came back to the office in 2011, I was assigned this open case homicide uh, when I became district attorney, got reassigned to my first assistant, but I still have a real interest in this case because I became involved in the investigation for years. The way the way the detectives work is very methodical, and uh, we've talked about elimination. I think Sherlock Holmes was the one who said, if you can eliminate all the other suspects, the only if there's only one left, no matter how improbable, that's your person. We've tried to do that. Uh, even even with motives, because if we could have the motive clearly defined for us, it would help us set us on a path, because then you could just search everybody related to that motive. Because of all the elimination that we've been able to affirmatively accomplish, we're left with a couple of recurring possibilities. This mistaken identity, but not random, meaning that Eric was mistakenly killed where the murderer was in intended to kill somebody else. Uh, I don't really buy this, but it could be that this was to send a message to another person that, that is still alive. We see that a lot in movies and on TV. Uh, generally, that's not the case because that's a pretty final and fatal message to send to somebody. Uh, one was that there was some neighborhood or neighbor dispute but we I can't say for sure but that's one that we've heard so here's what that's all about I talked to people in Eric's life and they told me this story about apparently a parking situation in and around Eric's neighborhood in the development there were very short driveways and smaller roads that were kind of weaving through this development there was a sign that was up there it was a sign from the township that said no truck parking or something along those lines one of the neighbors had a truck and apparently parked it close to where Eric had to get in and out of his driveway. Eric ended up pointing out this sign to the neighbor saying there's no truck parking here. Eventually, that sign was somehow ripped or torn down. Basically, Eric could not get out of his driveway when that truck was parked there. So it became a problem and it kind of escalated. 
So when the district attorney is talking about this neighbor dispute, this is the story that was kind of floated around. Those are still all open, and, and, and we don't want to rule out other potential motives because maybe we have it wrong, but we have heard those motives as well. So we've talked a lot about everything the police don't have yet. The motive behind Eric's murder, for one, that's the big one. But there are a few things they do have including some evidence that hasn't been released publicly. Surveillance video? Is there any on that? There is some surveillance video. It's been analyzed and, and reviewed as part of the case. And was that ever publicized? It was not publicized. DNA? Is there any DNA? Um, we, at the time, did some collections. And I can say this much, that we, every year, we continue to have that DNA analyzed. So surveillance video, there's some DNA, there's something. There's something. There's something. something. Okay. One more clue they're working with. Police think they have a pretty good idea what their suspect looks like. A description from one of the people in the parking lot who caught a glimpse of him after he shot Eric. What is the description of this person that came up? White male, 30 to 40 years of age, dark black curly hair, ski cap, dark sunglasses, average height, average build. Did you put out a sketch or like any pictures or any... We released a uh, description of the, of the suspect in the vehicle, but we did not release a photo or a uh, composite sketch. Do you have a composite sketch? We have a composite sketch uh, that we believe is is close to the suspect. What's, what would be like a reason for us, I mean, for the media not to get a hold of that? I'm just curious. Uh, at this point, I don't know that there is one. Uh, our goal now is, as it always was, but to take measures to try to solve this case. So, if that would be helpful, uh, I think we should need to talk with the lieutenant and detective, but I certainly would not object to releasing the sketch and uh, I have to talk to you about the video, the surveillance video. So, District Attorney Weintraub and Lieutenant Pinkerton and their team decided to release the sketch. It's the first time it's ever been publicly released. It's on our Twitter and Instagram, the Facebook group, kywnewsradio.com. Go take a look. Send it to your friends and family. Someone you know who lived or worked nearby 10 years ago. This is a really important opportunity to get some forward momentum in this case. Matt and Charles and all of the officers and detectives who have been working on this for a decade are making another big push to solve Eric's murder right now. And releasing the sketch is just part of it. They're also going to profile the cold case on Crime Watch. We have had great success receiving anonymous tips via Crime Watch. People that don't want to get involved, uh, but sometimes we post a video of something and they say, hey, <laughs> this is who you need to go talk to. They submit them and we're, we solve crimes very successfully using Crime Watch. Crime Watch is all one word. You can download the app or look for it online, and we'll have a link in the show notes as well. At this point, it's uh, leave no stone unturned. We've, we've tried a lot of the traditional measures to solve this case. My viewpoint is 
This was a cold-blooded calculated killing. This, this killer acted deliberately, intentionally with malice. He had a plan. He sat there and waited for somebody, uh, if not Eric Birnbaum. Eric Birnbaum was uh, the unfortunate victim of this uh, murder. And then the, the killer got in his van and drove away. We're at the point now, almost 10 years later, they've spoken with hundreds of, of people in interviews and run down all kinds of leads spanning four different states. I don't believe in coincidences, and I think it's very difficult to keep uh, a killing like this a secret. So people out there know something about this that just aren't coming forward. We need a little bit of luck on our side now and some help from the public to solve this case. People constantly ask me about this case. And they ask me, you know, what's going on with, uh, you know, that attorney in Holland that was murdered. Constant um, chatter amongst people in this community. Uh, and I'm sure you encounter attorneys, uh, you know, through the bar and through your, that ask about it. Absolutely. There's this picture of Eric. Uh, and I have it in my file at work and uh, he just has this little half smile and his eyes just have this sort of deep I don't know, like melancholy in them like it's very hard to shake that image when I think of this case you guys probably know the picture I'm talking about uh, and he's in a suit and tie and I don't want to be so dramatic to say it haunts me but every time that I think of this case that's the image that pops up in front of my face. I still take his children out to dinners once so every couple of weeks or so, or brunch, you know, whenever we can get together. They text me frequently. I, I call them a lot. They're younger, they text me more. What would it mean to you for this case to be solved? It's my number one on my, on my wish list. I'm not sure I'll be happy with the answer. There's more bad scenarios of an answer that I could think of than good scenarios. But still, I want this thing to be solved. Uh, for closure, people talk about closure all the time. I'm sure I would still think about him every day. So it would just close a chapter of the book. It wouldn't close the whole book for me. I'd like to know why. I'd like to know who. What it would mean to me it would give me an understanding of why this happened. It wouldn't make it better, and it wouldn't bring my brother back, but it would make me feel at least a bit of understanding. As the years went by, I realized it affected my own son worse than I saw at the time. Maybe, maybe my head was clouded at the time. But then a few years later, it came out that he was really struggling and suffering with it. He was scared to take out the trash and walk it from our garage to our sidewalk. And he kept that all inside for a long period of time. He wanted me to stop working. I remember him saying, uh, you know, why don't you just retire? Because I joked around and told him I was going to become a detective and figure it out. And he said, why don't you just become retired and let the detectives figure it out? On a selfish note, 
Um, you know, I miss spending time with him. Uh, I would like my dad not to be the way he is because he lost his son. My brother and I talked two or three times a week, all the time, forever. We talked about our parents and growing up and what amazing parents we had, what a great family. And now my friend is gone. If there's something that you would like to say to, to somebody that may have seen something, scared to come forward or know something... Um, you know, now's your time, whatever you want to say. Uh, well, actually, co- coincidentally, I, I did talk to someone who recalls that time. I spoke to them recently about something very different. And they said, I remember that when that happened. I remember hearing the noise and thinking it was a car backfiring. And then later in the day, hearing that it had been a gunshot, uh, What I would say is that a very good citizen, a good father, a good brother, a good son is missing, is gone. And for what? Nobody knows why. No one can figure out the motive. And if anybody knows anything and we can get some justice and more important, just some answers, why would this happen? I can't. I can't restore my dad's mind. I can't I can't give my nieces their father back, but it would be helpful at least to me to know what what precipitated this. Was it really a case of mistaken identity? Was it somebody just they wanted to join the gang and in order to join the gang they had to go out and do some outrageous thing and not get caught? I mean like why why do these things happen? And they're happening so much more all over the country. It's pretty frightening. So I would just ask anybody that has any knowledge of this that can possibly help us understand to please come forward. So here's where you come in. This happened 10 years ago. It's a long time. It's been a decade. And investigators are now hoping that relationships may have changed or maybe someone out there has a crisis of conscience and wants to get something off their chest. You can submit an anonymous tip or call police. Give them a nudge in the right direction. Anything somebody saw or might know, even very minuscule. I think people are uh, intimidated, afraid that they're going to be wasting the police's time or that the police will be angry at them for offering such an insignificant to them detail. They don't know what we know. They don't know that could be the missing piece to the puzzle. Say, hey, can I just talk to somebody? I was there that day and just share, you know, what I saw or what I heard in the in the time afterwards. Absolutely. Please let us be the judge of how important that information is, even if it's you think you thought you knew something but aren't sure, it doesn't hurt to let us know. The point that, that, that we're engaging in this podcast is because we want to make sure that people know that it's okay to tell us something that may not seem important to you but may be critical to us. You can call Northampton Township Police if you've seen anything or if you heard anything maybe 10 years ago that you think could help out. 
We'll also add a link to how you can send an anonymous tip to our Facebook page and our Twitter and Instagram pages. That's at Gone Cold Philly. We ended up having a lot of sound we didn't use in the episode. That happens pretty much every time. So we were wondering if you wanted to hear it. We could do a bonus episode where we go over some of the deleted scenes from episode six. Let us know. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all gone cold Philly. One more thing. We'd like to ask for your help to keep making this podcast. The best thing you can do for us is find us on iTunes and leave a rating and review and then tell a friend about us. Gone Cold is made by Kristen and me right here at KYW News Radio in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Obi Daz. Holly Stevens made the trailer for this episode that's floating around. And Charlotte Reese took most of the photos and videos you'll find on our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I'm Kristen Johansson. I'm Tom Ricker. Thanks for listening. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 